You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The Boys in the Band. Oh, and you, Donald, you think it's just nifty how I've always flitted from Beverly Hills to Rome to Amsterdam? I'm here to tell you, the only place that I've ever been happy was on the goddamn plane. Run, charge, run, buy, borrow, make, spend, run, squander, run, beg, run, 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 waste, waste, waste. And why? Who's coming? Same old tired fairies you've seen around since day one. This is gonna be fun. This old college friend of mine is in town, but he's straight, so... Do you really think he doesn't know about you? Emery, no! I couldn't care less what people do, as long as they don't do it in public. No, it's the delivery boy from the bakery. Ask him if he's got any hot cross buns! <laughs> Where the hell could Harold be? You Happy birthday. You're late. Oh, Michael, you kill me. When he's sober, he's dangerous. When he drinks, he's lethal. Go to that's your surprise. Hey, everybody. Game time. We all have to call the one person we truly believe we have loved. My God, Michael, you're a charming host. Who makes the first call? If you make the call, you get one point. I'm not playing. Who'd you call, Hank? Would you call me? If the person answers, you get two more points. I just wanted to tell him that, to tell him that I, I love him. If you tell them that you love them, you get a bonus. Who are you going to call, Alan? You ended the friendship because you couldn't face the truth about yourself. I'm sorry. I love you. Hank, why did you do that? Because I do love him and I don't care who knows it. I'm warning you. Are you now? I'm the one person you don't warn, Michael. Because you and I are a match. If we could just not hate ourselves so much. Oh, there's nothing quite as good as feeling sorry for yourself, is there? Nothing. Mary, take me home. These queens are crazy. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for The Boys and the Band, and the story is as follows. A visitor turns an evening upside down when he interrupts a gathering of gay men in New York City in 1968. The film is starring Jim Parsons, Zachary Quinto, Matt Bomer, Andrew Reynolds, Charlie Carver, Robin DeJesus, Brian Hutchinson, Michael Benjamin Washington, and Tuck Watkins. It is directed by Joe Mantello, and it is written by Mark Crowley and Ned Martell. Joining me for this podcast review, I have Tom O'Brien. Hey, everyone. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And joining us as a guest from Awards Daily, you've probably seen his content on the internet for Awards Daily TV, otherwise known as ADTV. It is Joey Moser, everybody. Hi, guys. Welcome to the show, Joey. And gentlemen, we got the band together. <laughs> Let's talk about the boys in this band. Let's talk about this play, this movie, probably touch upon the 1970 William Freakin film as well a little bit. This has been around for a while now, uh, going all the way back to 
uh, the 1960s, uh, pre-Stonewall, and this was a revolutionary play for its time in how it depicted uh, homosexuality, interior gay life, and it was a play that was, like I mentioned, a, a very, very big deal uh, because there had never been anything like it. You know, then you have the William Freakin film in 1970 that comes out. And here we are now, 50 years later from that. And we're getting uh, this movie, which also stars the exact same cast from the Broadway revival, which won the Tony Award for uh, Best Revival of a Play. So cast is completely the same. Uh, Joe Mantello stepping into the director's chair for this one. Uh, there's a long history to discuss here. Uh, I mean, let's uh, first go over to the guy who's actually been around for that history. Tom, <laughs> what's been your experience with the boys in the band? <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Um, I had to tee that up. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, being the elder statesman of Next Best Picture, I guess, I, um, I first encountered it during college. Uh, among the gay, my gay friends in college, everybody knew the lines. And uh, then uh, it fell out of favor in the 70s. Uh, you know, I'm, and I'm very glad that there's not been a whole lot of pictures of our bulking up and having mustaches. But at the time, but at the time uh, it was the thing to do. And now we can, can look at the boys in the band as... Not necessarily an antique, but basically a snapshot of what life was like a year before Stonewall. And I think in this case, uh, Joe Mantello did a terrific job in doing it. Yeah, I want to echo uh, Joe Mantello. Uh, his direction of this was a real standout for me in a lot of ways. And we'll talk more about that. But I, I do agree, Tom, that he is kind of the glue that kind of makes this all work again, might I add, because I know from speaking with Josh, I know when we talked about the trailer, uh, Josh, you were a little hesitant about the retelling of this story again in 2020. Mm, yep, I definitely had some complicated feelings with that material for sure. So uh, what did you think of it, uh, you know, actually seeing now this version of the story? Um... I still have those feelings. My thing with Boys in the Band, just as a play, is I feel like it's one of those things where we can look at it and appreciate its place in history and have reverence for what it was doing at the time. But I've always felt like it was really of a time, that it never really evolved past the point in which it was created. And... I, you know, I respect it, but I always sort of felt like we have other stories now that have filled that void. So for me, I've always been a bit at arm's length with it. And when this new movie was coming out, I had the same reservations to it. And I feel like they're still there with this one. I will agree that I think it is exceptionally directed. I think Joe Mantello does a really great job making this material feel cinematic while also keeping the integrity of the original play Many of the performances I do like, some of them not so much, but there are some really, really good standouts here. But I think ultimately it's still all shackled by the material, which I am grateful that it at least tries to give some complexity to some of these characters, but I still feel like is working with a foundation that I just don't really find to be that to be that nuanced, and it still feels kind of dated in its presentation of some of its themes that I don't think 
are completely engaging to me. So it it's not a terrible movie, but I think it is still one that relies on some explorations that I just don't find that compelling anymore. And it still feels like it's kind of dated material that can only really get so much exploration um, from me. All right, Joey, welcome to the show. Tell us your history with this material. What did you think of Boys in the Band? Um, well, first, I have to thank you guys for letting me uh, guest on this because I love this movie. Um, I'm a big fan of the material to begin with. I read it um, as a ambitious, doe-eyed theater major in college, and then I, you know, saw the the Friedkin movie, and then like the day that I. Um, saw the new one i sort of did like a boys in the band boot camp where i like reread the play i watched the freaking film and then i <laughs> watched the new one um i think that something about uh this this particular adaptation of it i feel like we're sort of in a time where we're sort of looking back at a lot of gay history and a lot of media maybe particularly ryan murphy who uh, produced the film, um, you know, worked with Joe Mantello before. Um, I think with some of his projects like Pose, looking back at the importance of a trans women of color um, in the ball scene in the 80s, and then also with some of his other films and documentaries that he produced, like Circus of Books, I feel like maybe I resonated more with it because I feel like he's sort of pushing the importance of gay history that maybe gets a little bit lost. Maybe that's why I um, really related to this material this time around. I'm also just sort of in a time where I'm like doing a lot of reading on gay history. I'm, I'm sort of like in the zone. So this sort of came out for the perfect time for me. I think a lot of the performances are really, really great. I've seen the movie like three times now. Um, and I think I find something new to love and appreciate with it. But I do echo uh, the appreciation of Joe Mantello's direction. I feel like maybe sometimes he would even just sort of let the actors, you know, play with these characters, especially because they got to play them for nearly 100 performances on Broadway. So I am a big, big fan of this movie. Sorry, that was a long rambling. <laughs> no, no, answer. please. You kidding me? Uh, listen, you got all the time in the world over here. <laughs> Uh, as the Alan of the group here, <laughs> or maybe not, we'll get to that in a little bit. This movie for me actually was my first exposure uh, to the material. I had not seen the William Friedkin uh, 1970 film hmm. prior to this. Um, I've watched now this particular movie, the 2021, uh, two times at this point. And on my first initial viewing, I thought to myself, as we mentioned before, so well directed the material is the material, so it's inherently great. And it provides so much character for all of these exceptional actors to be able to work with. My biggest complaint, I had two, I had two complaints. And they're kind of unavoidable when you're adapting a, a play usually for the screen, and that was constriction of setting. Because I kept on saying to myself, why is nobody leaving this room? <laughs> like, it is so painfully awkward uh, uh. and uncomfortable. And Michael, Jim Parsons, is making everyone feel like shit. Why hasn't anyone left yet? <laughs> you know? Uh, but that's the material, you know, being adapted. So, you know, it is what it is. 
The second thing is Jim Parsons. He is the lead of this movie. It starts with him. It ends with him. He is, quite frankly, for me, he was all over the place in this movie with his performance. And considering that he is the focal point of much of the action of this movie, it was increasingly difficult for me to sometimes really buy into his performance because like there were moments where I thought he was playing it perfectly and I thought it was some of the best work that he's ever done. And then there were other moments and it's the moments where he goes big and he goes loud where I just kept thinking to myself, like, why is he playing it this way? Like, and that's what I mean when it ties into the first complaint, which is Jim is going so incredibly hard with some of the emotions in the scenes, like like when he's yelling at Alan to call um, Justin on the phone. And I'm like, oh my God, like he's screaming, tears coming from his eyes and everything. And everyone's just kind of sitting there, just taking it. I don't know. It was, there was like a weird feeling of like, this isn't, I don't feel like this is just not how somebody would behave. So that took me out of the movie uh, on more than a few occasions, but everyone else, everyone else was I mean, Jesus Christ, this cast is like outside of like the Parsons of it all for me. I, I absolutely adored every performance in this. I mean, the Parsons performance, we have to think about what's going on with Michael at that moment. Yes. He has been off the wagon for a long time. I mean, his, I mean on the wagon, I'm sorry. Yeah. And he's fallen off the wagon tonight. And this is how... Some folks behave when they have their first drink or two or three or seven. The, okay, so like, you know, when he did have his first couple of drinks and, you know, you could definitely tell like the, the much more subtle and interior work he was doing early on in the movie. That was excellent. It was like I said, it was just when it started to get explosive that it didn't feel like tonally it was matching with anyone else's performances in this movie and what everyone else was doing. It was like Parsons was doing his own thing and everybody else was over here, (laughs) you know? I actually wonder if, because I think you and I talked about that briefly before, and I've thought about that the other times that I was watching the movie. And in terms of nobody leaving, um, I feel like I thought of, well... I wonder if these gay men who are not allowed to be who they are in the outside or that they are ridiculed on the outside since, like you mentioned, it's pre-Stonewall. Like they, I wonder if they look forward to these get-togethers as as horrible and explosive and as volatile as they are. I wonder um, if they don't leave A because um, not looking forward to it, but I mean like a bunch of sassy, sissy gay men in a room. Maybe that's something an area that they want to be in because they feel comfortable in it. And also I think no one leaves because everybody is like fall on their face drunk by the end. Okay. Your second point, I, I'll give you that okay. one. Your first point, <laughs> I think the film's working against your first point though, because of the opening montage showing everyone outside prior to the party. And there, there's a couple of people like uh, Emery who, you know, flaunts it and doesn't care. And then there's uh, Charlie. I'm sorry, not Char. I'm thinking of the actor. Uh, uh, sorry, not wrong, wrong person. There's a couple of guys to keep track of here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, Larry, who is also unabashedly like just picking up guys left and right. Who he 
does, does what was the nickname that he has for like every person that he hooks up with? They have like a code like name. Wasn't his name Charlie? Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I mean, there's. Uh, I I do think that there are examples of like you know of that where they do show them outside. Yeah. So so I think what you're arguing is definitely more interior psychological, mm-hmm. if anything. Maybe I don't I don't know I I think. Um... I feel like on a certain level, no matter where uh, the evening goes when it gets to the explosive ending um, with with Michael, I wonder if just that space being around other people that are like those people, I wonder if that that's just like in a certain way where they sort of want to be almost. And actually, I as I was watching the movie, I was also curious if since all these actors play the same parts that they played on Broadway, I sort of wonder what would happen if everybody switched parts. Huh? Interesting. <laughs> like I would love to see Andrew Reynolds as Michael love him because he's, he's such a, he's a great actor who pushes himself pretty much in every single thing. So I would, um, I actually like Jim Parsons performance. Um, I understand your uh, criticism of it. Um, but I sort of, emotionally sort of get where he is coming from. And I think a lot of that also is coming from the writing as well, where I just didn't like that he was pushing everyone with this phone game and really like pushing everyone's buttons and forcing them to do things that they quite honestly were maybe a little uncomfortable doing. And, you know, so like every time everybody got on the phone and he's like counting the points and everything, I was like, oh, you, you did. Yeah. We've all I, met a mean drunk. Sure. And he's a mean drunk. Oh, absolutely. What's that line where he says when he's Zachary Quinto says something like when he's you know, he's something, he's this, but when he's that, he's when he drinks, he's yeah. lethal. He's, he's I love that lethal. line. Okay, and that's something I want to ask too. So Michael in this movie, played by Jim Parsons, is going through uh this I, I I guess you would call it like, like an identity crisis where he's a homosexual, but he doesn't want to be. And he is fighting so, so hard against that idea during a time where socially like it is not acceptable. And so I was trying to kind of figure out through some of the interactions that he was having with some of the other characters. Is it is it right for me to... Uh, infer in this movie that he and Donald, played by uh, Matt Bomer, have like a bit of a thing going on between the two of them? Or are they just like really good friends? Well, I mean, this is during a time period where everybody was sort of <laughs> had a little thing with everybody. They're it's sort of in a moment where those traditional boundaries of like friend and romantic relationship are not quite as um solid so i think you are definitely meant to infer that you know they're they're friendly with each other obviously but that's sort of like the vibe that everybody has and you know i I do think that when we talk about parsons in this movie i feel like his performance is a bit inconsistent there are times where he's very effective and then i think there are moments when he's required to go big it doesn't really work but i think there's also like this sort of moment where that character fully switches over and it's after the fight that breaks out right before Harold comes and that's the moment where he really kind of decides to descend and 
I don't know if that moment has ever really landed for me, either in this movie or in the Friedkin film. I, I don't know. There is something about his change in demeanor that has never felt quite authentic for him to get to one side of the fence and then jump over into this total like land of cruelty that just is has never really landed that well with me. Yeah, because at first he's like party host. Oh my gosh, get the bag of ice and oh, we're dancing and we're having such a great time. And then next thing you know, out of nowhere, I'm the party host that's not letting anyone leave at this point. <laughs> and I'm going to make you all miserable for staying. <laughs> like, come into my psychologically fucked up mind right now and feel my pain, everybody, even if you don't want to, you know? I think actually in the revival, when the fight breaks out and he starts to drink again, and it's it's a very slippery slope for him, I think, because I've never seen it, I read in an article that it's a very pointed moment where he's in, he's like, Jim Parsons was upstage, and I think Mantello put a spotlight on him. Like mm-hmm. and and like um, darkened the rest of the action as they you sort of see this sort of point of no return begin to happen. And in in the movie, he gets a close up. And, yeah, he does. And yeah. honestly, yeah. they do that even in the original film too. I just still feel like that is obviously supposed to be a turning point for that character, but I feel like it is mixed in with a lot of different tones that are happening in that moment that. I don't think it really comes across that clear as to like what the real like inciting emotion is for him to suddenly um, just spiral into despair. Like I get that that's the moment, but I don't feel like it really comes across clearly as to like what is really motivating it. I, I think I know what it is. And this is a good segue, I think, into talking about the character of Alan here. I think when Alan fully denounces uh, the lifestyle by, you know, saying those, you know, horrific slurs, punching Emery in the face, it's a condemnation that resonates so much with Michael because and we don't know this yet because it hasn't been spoken in dialogue, but he fully believes that Alan is gay himself. And he is now determined, I think, you know, after that moment to get it out of him. And I know that this is supposed to be left up to the viewer to decide of whether or not Alan really is straight or if he's gay. I think this movie makes it so apparent that he is a closeted homosexual. Does anyone agree with me? Um, I think you're right. Um, I think at least the way the actor plays him, it makes it a very believable argument. Yeah, because he rallies against it so, so much. He calls up Michael crying on the phone Probably, like I said, because he has left his wife and he, where is he going to where is he going to turn to? And he's not turning to Michael, you know, because, oh, I, lo- I you know, left my wife and I want to have a drink with you and bond. No, I, I, I guarantee you he left his wife and he's going to Michael because he probably secretly loves Michael. <laughs> I think I think so. And he also I mean, he rejects the kind of gay person that Emery is, obviously. And, right. And then uh, but really is attracted to the kind of person Michael is. And that's exemplified by Hank. Yep. He goes right to Hank. The gay man who acts straight, essentially. <laughs> and we know from Michael that he is 
trying to hide so much that he is a homosexual uh, homosexual in society that, you know, he probably, even though we don't see glimpses of it, uh, we just hear about it through dialogue. We know that Michael is probably putting himself out there in the world more as a straight man than anything. Yeah. So that, I think it all adds up. And I think that is why the fight scene then is what does begin Michael's descent into full-fledged villain of the second part of this movie. But I but I also just like I said, I had such a problem with the fact that the phone call scenes with everyone, I mean Michael Benjamin Washington's uh scene, uh Robin De Jesus's uh moment, uh Andrew Reynolds and uh Tuck Watkins's moment together. Like these are beautiful acted moments that these actors are just tearing into and it's so affecting and then there's parson two points one point and i'm like shut up <laughs> you know in I mean, fairness that character is supposed to be like that at that point like he is supposed to be a you know an antagonist to everybody in the room and i get that that's very off-putting it is by design i still think those are actually the moments where Michael just sort of shuts up for the most part. And, I, you know, this is such shade, but it is sort of where Jeff Parsons is most effective when he's not talking, <laughs> I have to say. And but those are very strong moments, I find, in his performances. I, I think that by the time you get to his like big meltdown at the end, I don't know if that really worked for me. But in some of his more quieter moments, I do think that he's actually pretty effective. I wonder if he sort of starts to you know the <laughs> the game is also i think has to do with like control um because it is his party i feel like you know i mean this is a whole this is a play and this is uh the second adaptation all about like queer self-loathing so i feel like there's also a certain level of i feel bad about myself i'm gonna make you feel bad about yourself and like we can do it in front of each other before somebody from the outside world can do it to us in a harsher um uglier way like i think the the switch where he goes from you know happy dandy party host to <laughs> asshole is sort of um <laughs> is sort of on a slight degree sort of just thinking of a way of like he's it's he's an invader in this house he's an in, he's a stranger or an intruder into this sort of uh space that is theirs and I feel like the look on Jim Parsons' face when he sees um, Alan punching Emery in the face, I think that is actually sort of, there's like a fear in Parsons' face that I think is actually sort of heartbreaking. Um, yep. But maybe, <laughs> maybe I agree. <laughs> some, of the, some of the quieter stuff is more effective than people may think from him. Hello. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey. 
This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Yeah, the, the minute Alan enters that space, you get an immediate shift in terms of everybody's perception. And that, I think, is really well done. It, I mean, I love that moment when they're just dancing out there and you just see Alan come in the door from the distance. It's all very, very well shot. And it really yeah. lands so well the notion that, yes, this is the safe space for these guys. And the minute somebody even, like, acting straight performatively, you know, potentially. And the, the minute that energy enters the room, it like changes the entire dynamic. And I agree mm-hmm. that that definitely sets everybody into a different mood and puts Michael on edge. I still feel like it's a little muddled the way that it is eventually presented. I think it's there, but it's not it, to me, it doesn't come across quite as effectively as it could. And I think that is something that both this movie and even the freak conversion suffer from. I, I'm not even sure that we've mentioned the fact that uh, the entire cast here is gay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only one I couldn't figure out is uh, Brian Hutchinson. Is he? Yes. I believe he is. Yeah. He yeah. Is. He is. Okay. Okay. Just wanted to make and, sure. You know, and, and there is a, I don't know, I don't want to say gravity because it sounds boring but uh, uh there's a certain realism these these guys have lived this you know maybe mm-hmm. not in this particular segment you know it's kind of a party in a new york uh townhouse but they've they've gone through this and that experience really shows in their performances and one of the things I also love about the performances so much and why I enjoyed revisiting this movie on a second viewing and why I'll probably watch it again, actually, is because the characters are so well defined through the writing and also through the performances. They're really, really separated from one another and they all have uh, different degrees of um, their homosexuality that they, you know, uh, reveal to each other uh, in this safe space that. Every like, despite the fact that it's a you know pretty big cast here, everybody feels so distinct, and I never really got the feeling other than maybe Matt Bomer, which was a bit of a surprise for me because he is very subdued and he's not um, necessarily. He, there's like a large chunk of the movie where I feel like Matt Bomer just like kind of disappears and has like a line or two here or there, but the focus is not really on him until um, the end of the film with Parsons again. Uh, but regardless of that, I really, really enjoyed being in the room with these guys. And I really enjoyed their, you know, their, their, their not their personalities in the sense of like, like, like Jim Parsons, I would probably loathe being around him. But I'm saying I, I enjoyed them as 
as characters in a film. I, I found them to be dynamic and interesting. And, you know, the way they all played off each other was so effortless. The chemistry, I just thought, was truly fantastic. And I think that uh, Joe Mantello captured that energy that one would probably get from seeing the live uh, play to the film version here extraordinarily well. I think he really wants to sort of honor what Crowley's text is. Um, I think that I had the I had the opportunity to talk to Jim Mantella last week, and he has such a reverence for the material, and he has such a love for the actors playing these characters. Um, and I think I agree with you that like being in like I watched that that dance sequence like I'm not kidding like 25 times because it's just so fun. <laughs> and joyous and happy. Um, and I think there's also like a level of, um, because Tom, you mentioned the the gay actors, like I went back and I was looking at the, the actors who played it in the original film and in the original uh, stage production and like one, two, three, four, like five of the actors all died of AIDS and like two or three of them were straight. And one of them, like the guy who played Midnight Cowboy, he died of AIDS and the guy who played Emery in the original production, him and his wife took care of him until he died. Um, so I feel, yeah, it's sort of like this, I feel like the connection between the original movie and this one is sort of there. I think there's like a, a, a high level of respect that Mantella brings to the material and the actors. And I actually think if you like just go on YouTube and look at some of the interviews that some of the guys do when they were promoting the play, like the chemistry in there is insane. You mentioned uh, the Midnight Cowboy. And yeah. uh, I I got, I didn't even notice this on the first viewing. I noticed it on the second viewing. There's like a good portion where uh, Charlie Carver is just passed out on the couch sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even like <laughs> notice until like, there's just like one part where he's just laying there and the camera's not focused on him or anything. Like he just, He's just laying there, and I was like, oh, okay. And props to Charlie Carver for actually, like, giving a bit of humanity to a character that really there is, like, nothing there on the page. Like Definitely the f- most Finn-written character of the piece. Yeah, completely. yeah, like, there's nothing to that character. And I was actually rather impressed that Charlie Carver was actually able to not make him completely dynamic because he's still working with a character that's, you know, not really... There's not much complexity to him, but I think he did as about a good of a job as anybody could do with kind of a nothing character. I do want to say, though, I just want to really want to rave about my favorite performance in this, which is from Robin De Jesus. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And I think especially when I compare it to the original movie, which is probably my least favorite performance in that entire film. I just so was in love with this character. I thought he did an incredible job with this performance. I agree with you. And, you know, one of the things about his performance is that he is big and it's loud and it like just totally fills up the room. And then when he has his phone call scene, Robin just dials it back so much and retains this humanity that was just so emotionally affecting i i i I agree josh that maybe not on the first viewing uh but on the second viewing that i had of this movie uh his performance was the one for me that uh i think i can comfortably say was the best out of everybody in the cast here 
My, my favorite, though, actually, and I, I, I was talking to Dan Baer offline about this. I love the buildup to Zachary Quinto's uh, character, Harold, <laughs> coming to the party. And then when he gets to the party, I am in love with that character's swagger, that character's shade. <laughs> and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he calls out Michael for being the asshole that he is. And I just needed that so badly from somebody. I mean, Matt, if you were gay, you'd be him. <laughs> <laughs> I Like, he's so... I'm fascinated with that performance. I think it's really interesting that a lot of people that I know that did see the stage show were always like, what the hell is Zachary Quinto doing? But it's sort of like he's this weird alien beam down from (laughs) just the way that he talks, like the speed of his speech is sort of just like trying to calm everybody down like it's so slow so deliberate i love how like deep his voice is oh so originally God. i was just like what is going on but then i was like fuck it who cares it's it's so weird <laughs> i love it it's like if i was on the pod right now i would just be like i think that's an incredibly observant <laughs> you know like <laughs> i have kind of mixed feelings about Zachary quinto in this movie if i'm gonna be honest i think that, no well i will say this like on the surface, the green suit alone. Come on. On the <laughs> why surface, why do you hate Matt so much? <laughs> <laughs> I think on the surface, it's a very engaging and fun performance. I will agree with that. Like his line readings are fantastic. I think that he does a good job. I think my problem though is that once he enters, he never feels like he fully fits in with this group. And even as somebody who is supposed to be kind of antagonistic to some of them i just feel like his performance feels like kind of encapsulated in this bubble that never quite meshes with the rest of the ensemble to me so as good as i think zachary quinto is there is just a bit of something that rings inauthentic to me that doesn't quite mesh in with the rest of the ensemble and that kind of prevented me from really diving fully into his performance, which I think a, more of the other cast members are able to do. So I'm not saying he's necessarily bad, but it just didn't quite land as hard with me as I really wanted it to. See, I, what I was talking about earlier, though, in terms of varying degrees of tone of performance, I think like if Emery's all the way on one side of that, I think like then Zachary Quinto's all the way not necessarily like on the opposite side of that. And I would say Hank is on the actual opposite end of everybody. Oh, no, no. So so I've got like two categories, two charts here of <laughs> Hank is like kind of like all, like on an, like just in another realm, I feel like <laughs> where him, Bomer and uh, Hutchinson, I feel like are kind of like in one category. And then there are some of the other characters who like you could easily just point out, oh, no, like right away. Like I would be like, yeah, they're definitely gay. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're flaming. Uh, yeah. But there's like varying degrees of it. And I I, I think what the reason why it works for me, Josh, is because of the build up to his arrival to the party. Without that anticipation, and if he had just been there in the beginning, I would just be like, oh, that's that's interesting. But because there is this build up, I was then kind of expecting a performance that would come in that would be different from everybody else. It, it was funny when I first watched it, it, I thought to myself, oh, this is Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think also 
<laughs> there might be another thing for me where this character's supposed to be like so self-loathing and like, oh, I gotta like do so much work to myself to face the world because I'm hideous. And it's like, man, you still look like Zachary Quinto. Like I, my suspension right. of disbelief can only be carried so far in terms of how <laughs> ugly you think you look. <laughs> you may say that you're a 32-year-old Pockmark Jew like, Perry, but you're still <laughs> Zachary Quinto. Yeah, exactly. Like I know they tried to do some work to <laughs> make him look ugly, but he still looks like Zachary Quinto at the end of the day. <laughs> I know, like, yeah, and that's everything too. He's supposed to be how old in this movie for he's his birthday? Thirty-two. 32. He's like forty-three. Yeah, <laughs> not like he really does look like he's in his forties. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. Come on. <laughs> There's like a sort of uh, dignity that I think is really interesting if you look at how Emery Emery Robin de Jesus is my favorite performance. I just I just echo everything you guys say. I, I my he just that laugh of his just fills up my heart. It's he's there's a dignity between him and there's a dignity that um, I think Harold exudes to the world. I love the small interactions that we get to see between Robin and Zachary Quinto. Um, they have such like affection for each other. Yeah. Um, and that's something else that I can say that I love that Jim Mantello did is where if you were watching this on stage, your eyes would probably be darting back and forth to everyone. And he does a really good job of, you know, showing everybody's reactions to every little Thing. You're right, Joey. That That is really good. I, I know I mentioned before of there possibly being something between Parsons and Bomer, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong again, there is definitely something in the past between Harold and Michael, correct? Well, there's... Oh, yeah. There's something between... Um, there's something between Bomer and, and Parsons because there's a line about, like, Bomer says something about him not being able to get it up. Yeah, they had like a, a drunken fling a, at some point. A dalliance of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, like, Parsons even leaves his apartment at the end of the movie, and Bomer is still, like, there. And I'm just like, oh, well, that's very nice of him to just leave <laughs> him in his apartment like that. And I and I was like, what I, and I'm like, they say to myself, I'm like, would I do that? Would I leave my Brooklyn apartment and just, like, leave even one of my best friends, like, alone in there? I, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> you know? Uh, so they're definitely very comfortable with each other, for sure. Yeah, but I think Harold and Bomer are um, explosive. I, think, I, I can't imagine that relationship really being a, a calm, loving one. Harold and uh, Michael. And mean. Michael, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it's very, very clear that Harold has this love. Uh, no, sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. Disdain, but understanding of Michael. He recognizes so much that Michael is this asshole. It, I, it's that line where he says, like, you play the game, Michael, but I play it better than you. I always have. And I'm just like, <laughs> you know, thinking to myself, well, what game is he possibly referring to? And I think it is that uh, that self-loathing that we talked about before and uh, trying to mask it. And there's that last line, call you tomorrow. Yeah. Mm. Which I never would have expected. Uh, but I think that, once again, speaks to what we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, when I was saying before about why won't anybody leave the room? At the end of the day, it's like, these are all friends who put up with each other's shit, you know, the good and the bad. And at the end of the day, you know, unless if something truly horrific happens, uh, they're still going to be friends through it all. And that this is the one space that they can be truly open and honest with each other, which they can't ever really get 
in the outside world. So, right. you know, it was mentioned before during our discussion that no matter how nasty they do get with each other, at least it's honest. And at least it's the one place that they can air out these feelings and, you know, they will always treasure it. And when they leave, yeah, they'll, they'll be back. I do like that aspect of it, of this material. I still think though, that this obviously was a play that was written in the late sixties and about the late sixties. And I think that, what it wants to say and what it wants to comment about gay life at that time still feels kind of, I don't want to say antiquated because obviously self-loathing issues are still things that the gay community is dealing with, but I feel like the complexities of that self-loathing and the nuances of those discussions, I don't know if this material really gets into them as much as possible. And I think especially when it comes to kind of the, the racial dynamics, which this version smooths out some of the like really problematic things that are in this material. Cause if you ever watched the original film, Matt, I think you will hate Michael even more than you do yeah. now. It, it, and even the Emery character too, like they, they try to give him some redemption in this version. But I, I think that that is something that this material has still wrestled with. And I think this version tries its best to remedy some of those um, misfortunate kind of <laughs> things that it, that the original piece did, but I don't know if it ever really yep. finds a great way to have a more dynamic conversation about those elements either. Yeah. How the first film treats Bernard is really. Oh, shame. it's awful. Like it's yeah, really it's terrible. <laughs> and, and I was here i uh, actually going to bring up how Michael Benjamin Washington gives this incredible performance when he has his phone call conversation. And then the rest of his performance throughout the movie is I shouldn't have called. I shouldn't have called. And it's like, oh, what what kind of like a uh, I don't want to say a waste, but, you know, I, I was really, really into, you know, what he was doing with that character. And for the movie, the kind of just sidelined him after that, uh, you know. Did I read into it, you know, from a racial standpoint? I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of tough not to. Yeah, yeah, it's well, yeah, because also in the original, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Joey, but Bernard is the only person of color in the original production, right? I think so, because I think yeah. the guy plays. Uh, look it up. Yeah, I don't think Indeed. Emery is is meant to be. Um, a brown person like he is in this version. I think he is white as well, which makes all the things he says to Bernard even more heinous, to be honest. And I think that was a change that they made to kind of soften that character a bit. And I think for the most part it works, but yeah. I don't know if it really absolves everything that happens in terms of how they treat Bernard. And I think the moment that they try to give where Emery is apologetic about the things that he says just feels to me kind of really out of place in this production that took place in the late sixties. And that does not sound like a conversation that they would have had at that moment to me. Well, you know, I was thinking about that too, Josh, because even though we have the opening montage in the beginning set outside of the apartment, it feels to me at times when we do get inside the apartment, everything feels very incredibly modern and they, like there's almost like this quality that they want it to be timeless. And I feel that there are points where it's like there's barely any references to the times that they are living in. So 
I don't know. Like I was, I, I, I forgot while watching that this was taking place in 1968 uh, until like Jim Parsons leaves the apartment and I'm like, oh, look, cars, <laughs> you know, so I, I wonder if that's intentional by uh, Mantello to try and give this version more of a timeless quality, which I think kind of works against the movie because the material is so much of its time and it should be retold so that people can discover it, hopefully, um, so that this way they can understand, as Joey was mentioning, the gay history and realize that is this a bit of an antique? Sure. But let's 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 consider it to be like a beautiful one that we should hold up in a museum and cherish and study. And that's all well and good. Um, I. I do think, though, that maybe if that was intentional to try and give this more of a modern sensibility, um, I I agree with you, Josh, that then it kind of does clash with the material a bit. But don't think that gay men don't still get together for bitch sessions, because we do. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of times that, like, that I've gotten kind of drunk and called my friend's name. Not That's not a... I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it's... And I don't know even where it comes from. There's, like, a... I feel like a lot of people, whether they see it now or they see it in like the 80s or when it was originally done, I feel like that sort of uh, bitchy camaraderie is is that part, I think, is very, very timeless. Yeah. And we we need some place to let our hair down a bit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think my issue... And this has been kind of my issue with this play ever since I was first introduced to it is that the source of that like anxiety and that and that self-loathing that is explored here where you just need to kind of let it out and even attack your friends um, throughout the evening in these sessions. (laughs) It just still feels like with this material, especially like the main source of that is really because they are in a time where they can't fully be themselves. And not that that has gone away. I'm not saying that we've like moved past that, but I just feel like the sources of anxiety and self-loathing within this community have the conversations about that have evolved within the 50 plus years that this play was first produced. And it's not only because you can't show yourself to the real world. Like there are things internally within the community that causes that. And there are, the conversations that we have have become much more nuanced. And I don't think that this play was really written in a time when those conversations were happening. So for me, as accomplished as some of the elements are in this play, it will always feel very constrained by what people were talking about at the time. And I don't think it is it as a piece has ever really evolved from the moment in time that it was written in. So I always look at it as a specimen to appreciate, but I always kind of cast it in amber and say that this is of a time and it really doesn't offer that much more in terms of what has happened in the so many years that have passed since it first uh, premiered. Yeah, I see it as a snapshot. Yeah. All right. Well, final thoughts time. Joey, guest on the show. What did we not talk about that you want to address or something you want to reiterate? Um, I think something that I really enjoyed, uh, not enjoyed, this is actually a really sad thought, that this is a group of men who, this is set in 68, um, that uh, 
I, I wonder how their bond is going to be tested as they live in New York and the uh, AIDS crisis happens. I, I thought that a lot when I was watching it. I wonder how many get-togethers and gatherings this particular group of men is going to have during that. Yeah. Um, there was a... Uh, Mark Crowley wrote a sort of sequel to The Boys in the Band, I think in the like early... When, uh, I can't remember what it was, but he it was called... Um, the men and the boys, I think it was called. It was sort of everyone's getting together because Larry died. Um, I'm not sure of the detail. I've never, I've never read the play, um, but I, I thought of that like the community is going to go through a really hard time in the next 15 or so years. Um, and then something particularly about the film is I love the ending of the movie. I this the sort of montage at the end where you sort of see. Uh, everyone dealing as the dust settles. Um, and that I love the last shot of the film with Jim Parsons. Um, I think the ending might be one of my favorite things about the whole thing. Where do you think he's running to? Um, I actually thought, because I feel like the, the uh, natural thing to think of is he's running back to Mark, Matt Bomer. But I actually feel like, and this may sound kind of pretentious, that... I feel like the entire evening he's had eyes on him the whole time because what he has done is ugly and vicious and vile. And there was some joy in the evening that they share together. But I feel like to a certain degree, he's running away from us. Like he wants to get every single pair of eyes off of him. I think he might be even just like a little ashamed. He just went to church. Um, I feel like he's just running because that's all he knows what to do at that point. Mm. That's an interesting interpretation. Uh, I I will be honest that I really didn't like the ending to the movie. <laughs> I thought that like all of the momentum just like came suddenly crashing to a halt and it made like five minutes feel like an hour to me. But I'm glad that you liked it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Tom, what about you? Final thoughts? Um, um, uh, Matt, I hope you've enjoyed being the Mary Poppins of this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's a bunch of gay guys getting down and dirty. And, um, you know, it, for, for, to review a film like this, that's not a bad thing. Josh? Uh, two things. Uh, one is just a really, I just want to reiterate how much I do appreciate the direction of this film. Like, I really think that Joe Mantello brings a really great sensibility to this material. And you know what? He did a better job of it than William Friedkin did. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> Agreed. Yep. yep. Yes. Mantello. You know, greater sign, William Friedkin. There, you can you have me on record. Um, so there's that. And then I would I would regret this if I did not say when Matt Bomber laid on that bed, oh my god. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Joshua. Oh. <laughs> It ain't right that he looks like that. No, <laughs> it's like he's like he's like <laughs> genetically superior to everyone. No, he all. is an alien. Like he, he is so attractive <laughs> that he cannot be of this earth. <laughs> if only we could all age half as gracefully as he does. Like Jesus. Yeah. God. I was just like when uh, he uh, when he takes off his shirt and Jim Parsons like does like a double take and he's like stops like in his tracks to like breathe heavy and stare at him we were we were all jim parsons in oh, yeah. that moment very relatable moment <laughs> like, same. <laughs> like, oh. 
Well, this has been an interesting <laughs> hour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Final thoughts for me. There are so many good lines in this movie. So many. I wrote down only some of them. A lot of them came from Harold for me. And I, and I yeah. think some of it just has to do with the delivery. Like, I love when he says, who is she? Who was she? <laughs> who does she hope to be? I was like, God, like every line is just so delicious from Zachary Quinto in this movie. Oh, yeah. Ridiculous. I think my favorite line of his is Michael is going at him about something and then he just like retorts, well, I can't wait for you not to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, it, it just it just keeps on coming and it's it's pretty incredible. Um, like Michael doesn't have charm, Donald. He has counter charm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, oh. just, I'm just thrilled that this production got captured because mm-hmm. a lot of us couldn't get to New York to see this. Yeah. Yeah, that's really. Uh, yeah. I mean, I agree with you. And considering it's the same exact cast as uh, what was done for the revival, it does feel like you know obviously it's not like watching hamilton on disney plus but it it does feel like we are getting a taste of that and that's that's great especially during these quarantine times so thank you netflix and thank you ryan murphy i, I never thought i would say thank you ryan murphy oh. uh <laughs> <laughs> well give it another project you'll retract yeah it. <laughs> yeah right yeah it's so incredibly hit or miss for me. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I go through anytime that it's anything with Ryan Murphy. I've been like, if you go through the archives of anything that I've talked about on awards daily, I, I go through like such a visceral um, arc of how I feel about everything that he does. Like as soon as something's announced, I'm like, Oh my God, it's going to suck so bad. And then I watch it and I'm like, Oh, it's really good. And then like award stuff happens. Like, yeah, it is a piece of trash. Something else. <laughs> <laughs> it's really complicated. <laughs> But one thing I'm looking forward from Ryan Murphy is the prom. I <laughs> I'm looking forward to the enjoyment aspect of it, but from just an overall filmmaking quality standpoint, I'm in wait and see mode. Okay. <laughs> okay. We'll see. Uh all right. I'm giving this a seven out of ten. You know, I wanted to give it an eight so badly, but because so much of it is heavily focused on Parsons and his performance didn't always quite work for me, I think it's the best role that Parsons has ever been given. And there are times where I think it is definitely his best performance, but it's not a performance that fully worked for me personally i know that there are some out there who will say it's his best performance bar none and he's excellent in it and that is all well and good but for myself uh it didn't always quite get there and since so much of the movie hinges on that performance being at the center of this film i did have to knock it down just ever so slightly so a seven out of ten from me but man oh man did i really really enjoy this movie a lot tom um De Jesus uh, lifts it up to an eight for me. Go, cool. nice, Josh. I am at a six out of ten. I I don't hate the movie, and there are a lot of elements that I do really like about it, particularly Robin De Jesus. But the material is just always something that I've wrestled to really fully embrace, and I don't think that that really has changed with this production. I admire it kind of like from a distance, but don't really find that it's completely successful so that's where i land 
All you got to do now, Josh, is just say Betty Davis is trash and you're getting your gay card revoked. <laughs> oh. I mean, that was already revoked last year when I didn't like Rocket Man, so I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> Joey, it's a great out of 10. I'm going to be very generous and give it a nine. Um, I I just really, really love it. Um, and I feel like my gay card might get a little revoked because I'm sick of everyone talking about Call Me By Your Name. <laughs> there are other movies out there, people. No, there are. What? Peaches? <laughs> oh, and one other thing I want to just say really quickly. I want to see Andrew Reynolds in more film roles. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I will say that if no one watches Black Monday, he um, is a Showtime comedy. It's two seasons. I think it's available on Hulu or Amazon right now. He's this, I mean, it's set in the 80s, Regina King, Don Cheadle. It's delicious, fun. It it punches you in the face with how it switches tone. Funny that him and Took Watkins, who is his real life partner, they have a, a, a love uh, storyline in the second season um so it's sort of weird to see them <laughs> play love interest all the time but he's fantastic in that show and he's sort of like this crazy trumpian uh crazy person it's incredible he's incredible on that i can yeah. see i can see him being an excellent heel in some movie mm. oh yeah we'll next see him in the prom ironically enough and I, I can't believe we did make it through this entire podcast without mentioning that he actually is in a relationship in real life with tuck Watkins. that that when i found that out that actually blew my mind and obviously it's because they met on the set of the revival and boom <laughs> art imitating no life imitating art there we go <laughs> all right oscar prospects for the boys in the band kind of you know it's funny I was talking uh, with a friend of mine the other day and I was mentioning how, wow, like we're entering into that time now where every single week, for the most part now, up until the end of the year, we're going to get a Netflix award season contender, it feels like in a lot of ways. And I kind of consider this weekend to be the unofficial start to that. Uh, but I don't believe that this is going to receive any Oscar consideration. Can anyone see it like... Maybe showing up anywhere with globes or precursors or anything like that. I think it would get like ensemble stuff. I would I would not be maybe I don't know where I would specifically call that. Um, I would not be surprised if Robin De Jesus got a Golden Globe nomination. Um, but I feel like maybe it could pick up stuff for the cast as a whole. I think since the the awards calendar shifted so far, I I fear that you know the. It's, it's a lot of it's going to get lost, but I, I, I really wish something like I like the production design in it. I know a lot of people don't, but I really, really like it. But I think that's the only thing it would be up for. Watch National Board of Review for Best Cast, The Boys in the Band. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would totally work. Could be. Um, I'd say De Jesus in another year. But the um, Chicago Seven guys have got a stranglehold on that supporting actor. <laughs> yeah. De Jesus, though, is someone that I could see critics groups if they unanimously keep nominating him across the board, I could see a world where that perception starts to catch on and he does start to gain some traction. I hope so. Like it, that is a performance that could so easily get lost in the shuffle of these bigger movies that come out. But man, do I want him to get some kind of traction? Cause he is so phenomenal in this movie. And I know for me, I will be reminding people all throughout the rest of the year that this is a great performance that deserves some recognition. Alrighty. Too bad this wasn't uh, Joe Mantello's uh, 
you know, first time uh, directorial uh, feature, mm-hmm. you know, he would be a shoe. And I think for the DGA award, if that were the case. Yeah. But, you know, he just did a great job anyway, and we can celebrate that. Absolutely. Joey, thank you so much for joining us for this review here today. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I've always loved the podcast. I think what you guys do is is really, really great. So I'm I'm very flattered and humbled that you would ask me. So thanks for having me, guys. Thanks Absolutely. for joining us. Yeah, uh, tell everyone where they can find you on the internet. Uh, I'm pretty much across all platforms at JoeyMoser83. Um, so yeah, that's where you can find me. Okay, great. Tom, where can they find you on the internet? I am available at Thomas E. O'Brien. Josh Parham? I am on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of The Boys in the Band here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, also on Spotify. We are a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you want to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, please rate us five stars. Leave a comment. It helps us to get discovered, so we really, really appreciate that. And if you want some exclusive podcast content, you can head on over to Patreon. Under Next Best Picture for $1 minimum a month, you will get that exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time. Hey Hey there! there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Sleepover Cinema, Cinema. our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.